Well, I'd like to ask you to take your Bible this morning to the text we read together out of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And while you're turning there, let me just rehearse for you what we have been doing for our summer series. We have been pursuing a theme through both Testaments. We've been asking the question, what does God have to say in the progressive unfolding of His Word about our gathered worship? And we noted as we sort of began our series together that we were going to be primarily focusing our attention on gathered worship. And we certainly don't mean by that to imply that your personal worship with the Lord is unimportant. And I hope that you cultivate that in your life every day. I hope that the means of grace that God gives by which that worship is rendered unto God acceptably uh, are active in your life. And those means are generally the Word of God, prayer, the fellowship that you have with, through the Holy Spirit with the Father and the Son, and the fellowship that you have together as you serve the Lord in spiritual ministry at the church where He has placed you. Those are all means by which our worship to God is enhanced and by which our worship to God is rendered on a personal level. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, base that life of worship as we present our physical bodies to God for His use on a theology that is articulated for 11 chapters. And so we've talked briefly about that, and I don't ever want us to forget that, and I don't want to take it for granted that we say it one time at the beginning of our series, and then we don't ever say it again. So I want to just remind you that while we're talking about gathered worship that we do together as a church there's also a personal, private worship that happens that prepares you for that gathered worship. But we've been looking at what the Scripture has to say about gathered worship. And as we've traced our sort of journey through the, uh, both Testaments, we have come to realize that there are important components of that worship. And so today we're going to talk about the signs and symbols of gathered worship. How do we worship, and how is that worship expressed and enhanced through the spiritual signs and the sacred symbols that God has given to us? Now, as we journey through uh, both Testaments, we, uh, over time, were able to sort of come up with a fairly robust description of what worship is when God's people come and are gathered together to offer it. And you'll remember we didn't start with a definition. We didn't do what a lot of books on worship or a lot of series on worship do, that they start with some definition and then the whole series unpacks that. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's just not what we did. We wanted to look at the texts and we wanted the texts themselves to help us come up with a definition. And so we had a definition or a description more than a definition of worship. And we said, out of texts like uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 12, and Psalm 95, and Psalm 96, that worship is the exalting that we do over God's glory. That when we come together in gathered worship, we are exalting triumphantly over God's glory that was lost to us and that is being restored to us by means of the work that Christ did and the word that the Spirit applies to our life. And we went to 2 Corinthians 
chapter 3, and we reminded ourselves that as we look into that Word and the Spirit of God applies what we see to our life, just like James talked about in chapter 1, we progress spiritually from glory to glory. And so worship is the exalting over God's glory that was lost to us by sin and that has been restored to us and is being restored to us by the Spirit of God. And that's why we come and worship eagerly and joyfully and thankfully and humbly and obediently and repentantly and all of those other things that we have observed along the way. Worship is the exulting over God's glory so that we are transformed by that glory, into that glory, for God's glory. And we spent some time looking at Isaiah chapter 6 to see the transforming power and effect of the kind of worship that we're talking about. So worship is exulting over God's glory so that we're transformed by that glory. And the outcome of all of that is a third statement that I want to make that we haven't had before. And so the contribution this morning to our description is this, so that we render the appropriate spirit-enabled responses that God alone merits. So worship is exulting in God's glory so that we are transformed by that glory, into that glory, for that glory, and the outcome of all of it is that we would render by the Spirit's power appropriate responses to God that he alone merits. And so we've been building this description along the way. The second thing I want to do as we look at these sacred signs and symbols is I want to make sure we don't forget the goals that the elders have for our congregation regarding this series. We uh, announced those goals to you at the very beginning of the series. And along the way, not every Sunday, we've reviewed those goals together And uh, we're praying about those goals, and I hope that you're praying as well. Let me just quickly remind us of what the elders believe, uh, or why the elders believe we needed this series. And so as we come together and we sit under the preaching of the Word, uh, be mindful that the spiritual leaders of the church here believe this series is intended by God to accomplish some things. And so here are the goals, that we would see the beauty of worship and the power of worship when we come together in joyful praise, and that that joyful worship would fuel our glad service to God. It's interesting uh, over the time that I've been here to watch so many of you stand up in your own lives and say to the Lord, Lord, I want to do something for the Lord. I want to get involved. And over the last 24 months, so many of you have come and have said, look, I want to do something in the church. What can I do? Where did that come from? Where did that desire arise in you? It didn't arise because Pastor Ben got up and said, hey, you need to start doing more in church. That desire came up in your heart, and that desire came up in my heart because of the glad worship that we render to God. Worship fuels a life of service and ministry to God. The second goal would be that we would understand the glorious design of worship in the big story of Scripture. So that as we see the big story of Scripture and we realize that this life is not about our story and getting God to come into our story and make our story great, this life is about God's big story 
and the life we're supposed to use to accomplish the goals of that story, our belief is that thankful worship would be our response to that big story. And so we want to make sure as we worship that we are responding to the incredible story that God is telling for His own glory. We also believe that our congregation needs to understand and embrace, and and it's not that you're not doing this, we just want to do it more. That we would understand and embrace that corporate worship is one of the chief means by which we glorify God and we magnify Him to the nations. How in the world are we going to get the glorious news of the gospel to the nations? And the answer is, when we worship well. Corporate worship is one of the chief means by which we display all of that to the world. And then the fourth thing we wanted to make sure we grasped as a congregation was that worship is supposed to be transformative. If you can come week after week after week after week and sing and pray and hear Scripture read and sit under the preaching of God's Word and there is no change, then something is wrong with the way you worship. Because worship is supposed to be transformative. It moves us to worship all of who God is with all of who we are. And we saw that out of Isaiah 6. And then finally, the third or the fifth goal is that we would grow in our desire, in our ability, in our commitment to worship well in our gathered worship. Worship is worthy of our spiritual focus, and it demands our full intentional engagement. So those five goals. Uh, were the things that sort of gave rise to the series, and I hope you've been praying for them. I hope that you've been asking God to bring these about in your life. And then the final thing that we want to do is we kind of look at the signs and the symbols and, and we prepare our hearts for that is we want to remember the immense change that came when Jesus had a conversation with a woman at a well. And in that conversation, Jesus does an astounding thing. Remember the question of the woman that she asks him? She says, um, I, I have a question. I want to know, you know, we think we should worship on this mountain, and you Jews think we should worship on that mountain. And so I want to know, where should we worship? She's asking a location question. And Jesus gave her a stunning answer. He said to the woman, basically, it's not on either of those mountains anymore. It never was on this mountain. For 2,000 years, it's been on this mountain. You lived in the Old Testament. You came to this mountain, and you worshipped in that glorious temple, and you had a certain covenant that bound it all together with you that Moses mediated to you. There were certain sacrifices you offered to the Lord in grateful thanksgiving or sacrifices that you offered in faith to Him, asking Him to cover your sins. There were sacred times that you showed up there. There were sacred celebrations that you observed there. But all of this happened on a mountain in Jerusalem. And Jesus said to this woman, all of that is done. All of that kind of worship is over. God is looking for a different kind of worshiper. He is is looking for true worshipers, and they're not going to worship on that mountain anymore with those sacrifices under that covenant. They're going to worship at a different mountain. They're going to worship in the Spirit. That's the location of the new worship. 
And, and the reason we worship in the Spirit is because of what God is doing through Christ by the Spirit. He is building, in Ephesians 2, an immense temple that is much more glorious than the one that was in Jerusalem the day Jesus talked to that woman at the well in Samaria. There's a new temple that is being built. It is being built of living stones that have been quarried out of the pit of sin by the Holy Spirit, and they have been put into that temple as living stones. And if you want to know the most glorious stone in that temple, if you want to know the headstone, the cornerstone, it is Jesus Christ our Lord. And we come as part of that temple in the Spirit to offer worship through a better covenant mediated by a better priest, a better covenant than what Moses gave, a better priesthood and a better high priest than Aaron with much better sacrifices. And the signs and the symbols of all of that are intended to communicate to you all of those realities. And that's why in the gathered worship of the church, regularly there should be the celebration of what I just said through the regular remembering, reviewing, and rehearsing of the incredible thing that God has done for you and for me when He gave us our salvation and He included us in the new covenant that we now enjoy together. And so, with that in mind, I want us to look at these two sacred rites. And I'm not talking about a right, like it's my right to do this. I'm talking about right in the term of R-I-T-E. There are sacred symbols and spiritual signs that Christ gave to the church that we're supposed to celebrate And as we celebrate them, they bring back to our minds all of these realities. And so the first thing I want us to do this morning as we think about this is I want us to observe the importance of these rites. Now I'm going to use the word ordinances to describe them because we typically don't use the word rite, R-I-T-E, in our conversation with one another. We use the word ordinances. Some congregations might use the word sacrament, and I have no problem using that word and sometimes you'll hear me say the sacraments. Uh, the problem with that word is it's become very clouded by religious systems who use that same term to describe realities that are exactly the opposite of what Jesus intended the rites to do. Sometimes you'll hear somebody say, I'm going to take the sacrament of Holy Eucharist, or I'm going to take the sacrament of Holy Baptism, and you ask yourself, well, why are you doing that? And you ask them that question, and the answer is, well, I need salvation from the Lord, and this is how he told me to get it. I'm going to get salvation through baptism, and I'm going to get ongoing salvation through the holy table, through communion, through the Eucharist, and that's what they mean when they use the word sacrament. Traditionally, the word sacrament comes from a word that means sacred. It means set apart. And if you use the word sacrament to describe these two things we're going to talk about, and by sacrament you mean they are spiritual rites, they are sacred rites, they are set apart, I have no problem with that term. But it is so confusing to people in our day and age that the other word that we typically use is the word ordinance, and that word simply means this is something that Jesus Christ 
instituted and commanded his church to do. And that's why in our congregation, you're probably going to hear us use the word ordinance more than any other term to describe what we're talking about. And these two ordinances are incredibly important. They are spiritual rights established by Jesus for the church, and they serve as signs of the new covenant. They serve as symbols of important gospel realities, and they are a seal by which God validates over and over and over again that all of the realities and all of the rights and privileges that come with being a part of the new covenant are actually ours. They are intended to bring joy. They're intended to refresh us as we celebrate and experience the wonderful thing that God did that stands behind the right. So when we think about them, they are gracious commands from the Lord. Both of them, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are commanded by the Lord. In Matthew 28, 19, we find baptism as a command that we are to embrace when we receive the gospel. In Romans chapter 6, Paul talks about being buried with him in baptism unto death. There is an important symbol, baptism, that reflects a deep reality. And Paul talks about the reality in Romans chapter 6. The Lord's Supper is also a command. It's not just that the Lord commanded us to be baptized. He commanded us to take the Lord's Supper. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul reminds us of what Jesus said in the Gospels on the last night of his life. For I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. And then he gave a command. Do this in remembrance of me. And he did the same thing with the cup. And so these signs are gracious commandments from the Lord. They are intimate expressions of his grace. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, The cup of blessing that we bless. He's talking there about the communion cup. The cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Of course it is. The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? In other words, we have a part that God has graciously granted us in the intimate connection that we now have with His Son. They are also important identity markers. Who observes this? And the answer is people who have been brought into the kingdom of God, who have been made members of the family of God, and who have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, and they have become sons and daughters of God. Those are the only people who can take this right. These rights do not make you a Christian. They do not make you a son or daughter of God. They do not give you entrance into the kingdom of God. They do not make you part of the new covenant of God. That's not why they're there. These rights are intimate things that God has given to you because all of those realities are already true about you. And then they are corporate and communal in their nation. First in their nature. 1 Corinthians 11. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. And he's talking here about gathered worship. And this is why we observe both of these ordinances within the boundaries of gathered worship. 
at a regular scheduled worship service under the authority and oversight of the elders. So, Pastor, what do you mean by that? This is why we don't, as individual families, just decide we're going to baptize our kid in the baptism uh, in the bathtub. This is why, hey, you know what? Uh, I think I think Johnny just got saved, and so we got a pool in the back. Honey, get the kids. Let's go out there, and we'll just baptize him right here in the pool. And I would suggest to you that 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 destroys the imagery of the ordinance. They are not intended to be celebrated by your private family in your private home. They're not intended to be celebrated by a subgroup of the church of which you're part. This is why we don't observe the ordinances in our small groups or in our Sunday school classes. These are ordinances that were given to the church that we observe together when we come together. They are gracious commands of the Lord that are to be done together. Although we do it individually. We each take the ordinances. Each of us has to be baptized. Each of us has to take at the table. That's why in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul said, let a person examine himself and then eat. They are marked by joyful thankfulness in their observation. Man, when you came together in the Old Testament to celebrate a feast at the temple, it was a joy-filled occasion. When your son or daughter was brought into the nation of Israel uh, through the sign of circumcision, your family through a celebration. And now we have these two signs and symbols when we observe somebody being baptized. There should be joyful celebration going on in our community of faith. When we take the Lord's table, it should bring joy in our hearts. And so why doesn't it is a question I think sometimes we need to ask ourselves. They are refreshing. They are strengthening. There's something that happens when we take these rites together that brings spiritual strength. And so they are important ordinances for the church. But I want you to notice, secondly, that they are spiritual in nature. They are spiritual in nature. What do I mean by that? I mean two things. Number one... They, they are spiritual reminders of physical realities. So, number one, they're spiritual. They are not the reality. They symbolize the reality. They sign to us the reality. And they seal again in our hearts that we really are possessors of the realities of which they symbolize. So, they are spiritual in the sense that they are not themselves the reality. But they're also spiritual because the Spirit of God has to enable us and energize us to appropriate those realities and for those rights to have their intended effect in my life. So let me just be real plain with you here, and that is when you come here and you observe a baptism, the Spirit of God should work in your heart as you observe that, and there should be things that go on in your heart and in my heart as we observe the bold courage and the clear declaration of the person being baptized that I am no longer a part of the kingdom of the world. I am now a citizen of the new kingdom, and I want to announce that to everybody. I'm going to live for certain values that I didn't used to live for before. And all of a sudden, we're watching somebody make this monumental announcement. There ought to be something deep going on in our hearts 
about our own life. Have you ever been to a wedding and you listened to uh, the pastor give the wedding ceremony and all of a sudden you began to relive your own wedding? And you're like, you know, it was 37 years ago and I stood there and wow, that pastor is telling them to do this and I need to be doing that, and I need, and, and you go home and you say to your wife, honey, I'm so glad we've been married for 37 years. I want to renew my commitment to do all the things we just heard about today. I didn't get married again. I didn't go through a brand new ceremony, but observing somebody else get married, the once and for all moment of marriage really stimulated me. It helped me. It convicted me. It refreshed me about my own marriage. And every time you watch somebody get baptized, that's the kind of effect the Spirit of God should be working in you. You eat the Lord's table. There are important realities. You know, I brought something along to help today. I don't normally give you a show and tell, but can you just let me do something today that I don't normally do? I got a little bag of important things that are important to me, that really aren't important to anybody else but me, but they're super important to me. And so, here's the first of them. This is a little mug. It's a, it's a, it's a mug of Boston. The Traveler's Choice, Satisfaction Guaranteed, Bean Town. Anybody from Boston? Anybody been to, Bo- been to Boston? Been to Boston, been to Boston, yeah? Um, this mug <clears throat> is very important to me because it represents something. Um, my son and I, a couple of years ago for Christmas, my son said, Dad, I don't want to just give you socks. I don't want to give you a time like, thank you. I want to give you an experience. I'm like, okay. He goes, and the experience is going to be a trip with me. I'm like, I'm not sure I want that experience. <laughs> and so we decided, just the two of us, to go to Boston together for three days. And we were going to do the Freedom Trail. And we did, and it was an, it was an astonishing trip. I mean, I many times relive things about that trip. I can remember where we ate. I still remember the, clo- the coat I had because it was freezing. We went at Christmas. And somewhere along the line, I decided to buy this mug to remember the trip. Now, this mug has a chip in it. You say, well, why don't you just like, go online and get another? It's not, no, no, it's not the same. This is the mug. And every time I drink coffee from this mug, I relive the trip. It's an important moment in my life. This is another one of those moments. This is a little globe. I got this at the Smithsonian this past April. We decided uh, some years ago that we would give our kids a spring break trip of their own. And so Ashton wanted to go to the Smithsonian. And so we went. And it was just Beth and me and Ashton, and we spent a whole week at the Smithsonian and and walking around Washington, D.C. And we have many hilarious moments of that trip. Can you imagine Ashton having to put up with the two of us trying to find our way in Washington, D.C.? And I'm like, no, I've got my, I've got all those little maps and brochures. Like, I think we're supposed to go this way. Beth's like, I don't, no, no, I don't, I don't think you should go. That. I think you should go this way. And Ashton's over here. You two would not find your way home if you had to. And she pulls out her phone and gets out Google Maps. And then we're watching. All we had to do the whole trip was just follow Ashton around like this. Remember that text in Scripture that says, a little child shall lead them? <laughs> that happened. And you know, it was such a special moment that we went to the Smithsonian and I bought this, a map. It's not Google Maps. It's the kind of map I like. 
And I put it there to remind me that it's useless. And so it's in my office, and every time I look at it, I think, oh man, I need Ashton. Where is she? She, uh, She's got some, and and it just helps me to relive this. And then I brought a little tiny thing here along the way. This is a little lighthouse. And this represents an important part of our family history. Probably since 1980, my in-laws and Beth have visited a particular place in Florida where they own a vacation property. And our whole family, for more than 40 years, has been going there. And when I married into the family, we went down and had our honeymoon there. And then beginning in about 2010, every year for two weeks, our family has gone to that place. We measure the weeks of the year. By how many more weeks do we go to Sanibel? That's our deal. And when we get there, it's like paradise on earth until Hurricane Ian blew it all away. And so this year we're having to do something different. But this little lighthouse, I actually have a lighthouse that's on the island. It was just too big to bring. So I brought this little one to symbolize. I look at those and they are not the realities. But they are important symbols to me of the realities they represent. And I don't just look at them. When I look at them, I relive the moment. I rehearse in my mind and in my heart, even almost instantaneously, different parts of what I treasured and valued about each of those experiences. I remind myself that, man, we're going back to this island and it's going to be great. And if you want to know what the Spirit of God does through these two sacred signs and symbols, I just gave you a very limited and very broken illustration of what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to remind you of realities that go way beyond. They are spiritual signs of something immense. They are signs of a new covenant that God mediated to you that is so much better than the old covenant. In in Jesus' day, before He came the first time, the most gracious thing God ever did on the planet after the fall was to call Abraham to faith and say to Abraham, I am going to bless you And through you, I am going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a seed. And I'm going to let you be the channel of blessing to the rest of the world. That's the most gracious thing God ever did. You could argue, well, okay, He did Noah. You know, We could argue about those things. But there's no question in my mind that the most gracious moment after the fall was when God called an idolater from Ur. He opened his eyes. He quickened his dead heart. He granted him repentance. And Abraham believed God. And if you go to the book of Romans, chapter 4, Paul says, now there was a sign, a seal, that God gave to Abraham after he believed to validate before everybody that he actually had faith. And the sign was circumcision. Now later that sign became how a Hebrew family would uh, bring their son to the priests and dedicate him, and at some point he would become a covenant member of the nation that God had given Israel. 
But this sign of circumcision was initially given by God as a gracious seal of an important reality. And the important reality was that Abraham had come to faith. That God had granted him faith. And it's in that sense that the New Testament connects baptism to Abraham. We keep wanting to connect baptism to Moses, but Paul connects baptism to Abraham. And, and so how do I know that Abraham had faith? God says, I gave him a sign. And the sign symbolized this important reality that had happened. My part in it and his part in it. My part was to open his eyes. My part was to quicken his heart. My part was to summon him. His part was to believe. And I granted him that faith. I granted him the ability to believe. I granted to him repentance. And by the way, those same things have happened to you, haven't they? Do you think you just got saved because you woke up one day and decided you wanted to get saved? You got saved because God summoned you. That's the whole point to calling, isn't it, in elections? God called you. And then according to 2 Corinthians, God quickened your heart. Ephesians 2, He opened your eyes so you could see the glory of God in the face of the gospel of Jesus. And Paul talks about it this way. He granted to you repentance. You say, well, what did I have to do? You had to respond to that. You had to repent of your sins. And you had to believe. And when that reality came online for Abraham, God said, now I'm going to give you a sign. I'm going to give you a symbol. I'm going to give you a seal. And he granted to him circumcision. As an adult, after faith. And that's exactly what Paul does in Romans when he wants to talk about how a person gets faith and in the New Testament, baptism is the sign and the symbol and the seal of somebody who has done what Abraham did. In Abraham's life, it was circumcision. In our life, circumcision has become baptism. Not the baptism of an infant, sort of marked by the circumcision of an infant in the covenant of Moses, but in actually a much bigger way, the circumcision of an adult who came to faith and the, and the baptism of somebody who is an intentional believer. And so this is an important sign. The Passover was another important sign that an old covenant, uh, re- of an old covenant reality, God instituted this meal for Israel to celebrate the giving of a covenant and the commitment He made to them. It's interesting that when God gave Moses this right, when God gave Moses the covenant on the mountain in the book of Exodus, everybody ate a meal. And when God delivered Israel from Egypt, that meal was re, they, they re-ate the meal. It was reinstituted, but this time it was given even more significance. This time it was given the significance of the God who gave you the Mosaic Covenant is going to deliver you from Pharaoh. <clears throat> and now that you have a new and a better covenant, you have a new and a better meal. And the new and better meal is the table that Jesus spreads that he introduced to you when he said to his disciples on the night that he died, there is a new covenant that I am enacting that you're going to be a part of that is incredibly better than the covenant you have been living under. And the sign and seal of that new covenant is another meal. And it's way better than the old meal. You know, sometimes you'll 
hear Christians talk and they get so excited because, oh, we're going to observe a Passover meal. And they get so pumped about the Passover meal. And they invite their friends and, and they listen to somebody get up and they talk about all the different parts of the meal. This is what this is. These are the three chairs. This is the empty chair. These are the three cups, rather. And, and so all of a sudden, all of this, and we get fascinated with the Passover. You say, Pastor, is that wrong? No, it's not wrong. And every once in a while, it's good for us to remember what God did in that Passover meal. That's wonderful. But sometimes we get more excited about a meal that Jesus said is over, and we just barely pay any attention at all to the wonderful meal that He gave us at the Lord's table. And so we have these two incredible signs that have been given to us of two immense realities We have been given a faith, and that faith is real, and it delivers us. And the sign of Abraham's faith was circumcision, and the sign that faith has come to us is our willingness to obey the Lord in baptism. We have been given an incredible meal. The meal that Jesus spread. Can God prepare a table in the wilderness for His people? Like Psalm 23 says, and Jesus said, yes, in Moses' time, God sent bread down from heaven and fed those people and gave them life in the wilderness. And now I am the bread that God is sending down from heaven, and I'm going to give you eternal life that never ends. This is John 6. And that meal is a reminder to us that we have this life. And that brings us into the purpose and design of these ordinances. Why do, we, why do we do them? If we have the realities, why do them? Well, quickly let me just say that these ordinances remind us of the gospel truth that is ours. They cause us to stop and intentionally reflect on those realities and what they mean. And here's the thing, they, they, they cause us to stop and reorient our lives so that we are actually living for those realities and to what they point. You say, Pastor, what in the world are you talking about? All right. When Jesus instituted the command to baptize people, He said, you baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. If you were in the Roman Empire, there was a name that you lived under. There was a Lord that had full control over everything that happened in that empire, and you lived under that name. You honored that name. In fact, if you lived in the Roman Empire, you considered that name, and you would attach a word, soter, which means Savior. Whoever that name was, he was the Savior of Rome. You would use the word Lord attached to that name. Whoever that person was, he was the Lord of Rome, and he was the Savior of Rome, and the entire army and military might of Rome were accessible to him and under his command so that he could maintain the peace that was called the Pax Romana. And you know who I'm talking about. That Roman Empire had as a Lord, a Savior, and a peacemaker, a man called the Emperor. And whatever the Emperor's name was, that's his name you lived under. 
And all of a sudden, here's a person who stands up, goes down into water, and says, I am no longer under that name. I am no longer living just for that empire. I have a bigger empire. I have a better Lord. I have a better Savior. And I'm looking for a better peace because I'm in a better kingdom. And the way you symbolized all of that was by being baptized in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. And just so we don't forget it, when God instituted through Christ the the Lord's Supper, Jesus said, you need to do this because you are announcing something until He comes. And Jesus said when He instituted it on the night He instituted, I'm not going to take this again until the kingdom. There is a kingdom that is bigger than all the kingdoms of the world. And you are part of that kingdom. You were taken out of the kingdom of darkness. You were translated into the kingdom of light, Colossians says. And you're supposed to live for that kingdom. And every time you watch somebody being baptized, you're like, there's somebody who is renouncing the kingdoms of the world and they are now announcing that they live under a new Lord and a new Savior. They possess a better peace. And they are living for a different kingdom. And every time we take the Lord's Supper, it should reorient our life so that we are actually living according to the values of those kingdoms. Let me give you an illustration. I want you to think of a city that you build. Let's say somebody gives you or you inherit your kids' Lego sets when they go off to college. And you got a big, huge bin of Legos. And you take all those Legos out and you build the most amazing city in your garage. Your wife's like, what are you doing? I'm, I'm, I'm practicing my engineering skills. I've always wanted to be an engineer. What are you doing? I'm building a city. And your wife comes out and goes, you're playing with Legos. Just be honest. Well, but I'm building a city. And you build this amazing city. I mean, it's got gates. It's got little things to go up and out. It's got little working lights. It's got roads. It's got little trains. It's, I mean, it, it, it's a massive city. And you love the city. Somebody else is, says, you know what? I'm, I'm going to do the same thing. They, they don't have a big Lego set. In fact, half their Legos are broken. And so their city looks like a disaster hit it. All of us have a Lego city that we live for. And what we spend our life doing is trying to impress God with our Lego city, and we spend time trying to get God to make our Lego city better. God, this is the big city. This is it right here. I need you to make sure everything works in the Lego city. I need you to send me more Legos because I actually want to throw this wall out and I want to build a suburb there. And over here, this is going to be the new downtown center. I've got to make this better. And so I need more Legos and I need you to make sure you smile on the Lego city because this is what I'm living for. And by the way, that's the way most Christians live. And Abraham would look at that and say, are you kidding me? That's the city you're living for? And he would say, now, can I show you a different city? Hebrews says that Abraham saw a city whose builder and maker is God. And that city is going to show up in Revelation 21 and 22. And Abraham said, I have been to some awesome cities. 
I traveled to Egypt and I saw the massive cities that were there. I could talk to you about cities in Ur and in Assyria. Lot said, there are five little Lego cities, Abraham. I'm so tired of you telling me about this city. I mean, I thought maybe we were going to hang in Egypt with, with those cities and I, I don't even know why we left Ur and the massive cities that are there. And you keep talking about a city and there's no city. It, there's just, just to be honest, there's no city. You know what there is? There's tents. That's what there is. There's a bunch of tents, and you keep trying to make the tents a city, and they're just tents. And I'm tired of tents, and so I want a city, and there's five of them over there, and I want them. And Abraham said, okay, I'm going to wait for the city. I'm going to live for the city. That story in your Bible is representative of the way believers live. So many of us are sick and tired of tents. God, I'm so tired of the tent. Nothing works in the tent. I, it just, it's, it's constantly broken. It just, this stuff happens in the tent. And, I want, and, I, and you keep telling me there's a city, and it's not coming in my lifetime. So you know what? I'm going to just abandon the tent life, and I'm going to go to whatever city, and I'm going to live for that city, and I'm gonna, that's where I'm going to be. And Abraham and Paul and thousands of other believers would say, don't, don't do it. The city is real. Its builder and maker is God. You got citizenship in that kingdom and the validation of that is when you renounce the kingdoms of the world and you said the Lord is my Lord and my Savior at your baptism. Relive that in your mind. Don't ever forget that you have a place in that city. And that city is immense. And the things that are there are eternal treasures. And they bring pleasures forever at the right hand of God. And there is a meal that you take regularly to rehearse that. And to remind yourself so that you never forget the beauty of the city. And you exchange it for the little broken Lego city, whatever that is that you're building, whether it's your marriage, your family, your job, whatever it is you're building. And when you understand this, there is an immense thing that happens. There is thankfulness that rises up in our heart and comes out of our mouth in praise that leads to glad service that's fueled by confidence that we have a part in that city. And the only reason we got that part is that Jesus Christ came and did something for us that we could never do for ourselves. And we rehearse those realities in these two sacred symbols that remind us over and over and over again that we have a better covenant. We have a better priest. We have a better city. And we can offer better sacrifices. But what happens? We come in, it's like, oh, Lord's Supper again. Service is going to go long. I have an appointment. Baptism, I, you know, why, why do we all have to take time? I know you don't do that, but that's what a lot of people do. And the sign and the symbol that is supposed to produce such joy and such praise and, such, and fuel that kind of service just sort of falls flat. And I want to challenge us as a church that the only way those symbols are ever going to retain 
Their power and their value is when the Spirit of God works in our heart. That's why they're spiritual. They're not just spiritual because they're signs. They're spiritual because in them, the Spirit of God has to connect you to the grace that they represent. The symbols are not communicating grace to you, but they are a pathway to remind you of the grace that you have. And that only happens when the Spirit of God is at work. It's like preaching, isn't it? You, you can sit through preaching and nothing connects, and then one day the Spirit of God is at work in your heart, and it's like everything comes alive. It's like, wow. And that's the way it is with these ordinances. You can observe them your entire life, and then one day the Spirit of God just goes, and you, you see them in a new light, and you never, ever want to go back. And that's what I'm hoping and asking, and that's what the elders desire would happen at Palmetto when we take these ordinances, that the Spirit of God would do that in us. So let's pray and ask the Lord to do that, shall we? Lord, thank you for such a gracious reminder from your word of the value of these two sacred signs and these two sacred symbols that we've been observing our whole life. Lord, there might be somebody here who's never been baptized and your spirit is saying to them, it's time that you make a public declaration that Jesus really is your Lord. That you really have been granted repentance and that you're thankful for that repentance and that salvation. So Lord, there might be people here that have been coming for a while that have never been baptized and, and, and they need to and I pray that you would help them. Lord, maybe there are people here who have been observing the Lord's table and have never really rehearsed over and over again the, the significance, the beauty of what you've accomplished and what you've given to them in that sacred meal. And so, Lord, the first thing we want to say to you is thank you. And the second thing we want to do is exactly what Paul told us to do, and that's to examine ourselves regularly, to come before that table with grateful hearts and obedient lives and submissive wills. And Lord, we can't do any of that sitting here and simply deciding to do it. We recognize that. That's only something your Spirit can do. And so that's what we're asking, that your Spirit would go throughout this congregation and touch each one of us and awaken our minds, quicken our consciences, and help us to submit our wills to whatever it is you're asking us to do. And the table reminds us that you've already done this once in our life. And, and Lord, we want it to be over and over and over. We want that individually. We want that corporately as you speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen.